All right, so we started um, last week in our Sunday school class. Um, we started covering, I intended to cover question 48 through 51 of an Orthodox Catechism. So we're in uh, section sort of, uh, or the middle section of, of the Catechism. If we do uh, understand the Catechism under those three categories as guilt, grace, and gratitude, um, guilt, uh, the fact that we have her- inherited from Adam his, his guilt, uh, the, the debt that he owed, and we have a corrupt nature being in Adam, that's sort of the first section, guilt, and then grace of man's redemption. How does our triune God redeem men from their natural condition of dead in Adam? And then the last section of an Orthodox Catechism deals with gratitude. What ought to be man's uh, response? What is the right response to uh, the grace of God in light of what we deserve? It's thanksgiving. It's gratitude. But right now we're in section, sort of the, the middle section that deals with grace. And we're looking specifically at man's redemption related to God the Son. So this middle part of the catechism takes a, it has a Trinitarian uh, tone. It wants us to consider salvation um, as the Father works in salvation, as the Son works in salvation, as the Holy Spirit works in salvation. As our God is triune, right? So we want to consider our salvation in Trinitarian terms, and the Catechism is sort of helping us along in that. So last week, I covered question 48 and 49, and I got to 49 and saw that I had a lot more material to cover, so I cut the class in half and said we'll do half last week and half this week. So this week we'll cover um, 50 and 51 in an Orthodox Catechism. But last week we looked at uh, question 48, what fruit does the ascension of Christ into heaven bring us? And if you have your catechism in front of you or just the, the answer there, let me have someone read the answer for us. To read it first, that he makes intercession to his Father in heaven for us. Okay, stop there. And then I'm going to have you read B and then stop and then see and then stop. Um, so the benefits of what Jesus has purchased for us is brought to us by his own intercession for us, which we'll talk about a little more. And then the second part there. Second, that we have our flesh in heaven, that we may be confirmed thereby as, a, as by a sure pledge that he who is our head will lift us up. Okay, his members unto him. So Christ has been resurrected. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. And we, having union with Christ, the scripture says, we are seated with him. In heavenly places. Um, he is right now with his body. We talked about that last week that Christ didn't um, leave his flesh, but uh, he right now sits enthroned with uh, a human body, glorified um, at the right hand of the Father. And our union with Christ is such a sure promise that it can be spoken of as past tense. We are seated with him. And then third? Third that he sends us his spirit as a pledge between him and us, by whose power we seek after not earthly but heavenly things, where he himself is, is sitting at the right hand of God. Okay. So Christ offers himself on the cross once and for all. Right? Hebrews affirms this, uh, that Christ, once he finished his work, he sat down at the right hand of the Father in glory. This sitting down is... Um, opposed to or set over against the priests who stood daily in the temple making sacrifices. 
Christ, after one sacrifice, once for all, sits down, showing that the work is done and that the Father is pleased. Christ offers himself for our sin. Now, how do the benefits of what has been done, what Christ has purchased for us, how do they become ours? I talked about this a little last week. I want to see if you were, li- you were listening. How do those benefits become ours? What do we talk about there? Yep. My faith in Christ. Right. What else? Anything else come to mind? Yeah. Right. And how does that happen? How does that happen? Right. Thinking about considering that our God is triune. Right. But by the spirit. The spirit is the one who does this work in the heart of, of the unregenerate person. The benefits of what Christ has, uh, has purchased for us, the reward of what was earned for us, we take possession of it by the Holy Spirit who works in our heart, right? Um, yeah, so that, those, we, we covered that in question 48, talked about Christ's intercession, and then in question 49, just a review here. Uh, why is it further said in the catechism, question 49, why is it further said he sits at the right hand of God? Now, we talked about this as well. What does it mean to uh, this language of sitting at the right hand? What is the significance of that language of Christ at the right hand of the Father? Uh, authority, All right, authority, yep. Completed work. Completed work, yep. All right, so this idea of authority this accomplishment of something that's done, completed, to sit at the right hand, even when just in, in, in antiquity, when a king wanted to honor someone, he would sit them at his right hand. And at that position was also given uh, authority, uh, power, um, rule over certain things to govern those things. So we talked about that as well. The right hand of God signifies also omnipotence, unmatched and immeasurable power. So this isn't the right hand of a mere earthly king or someone in authority under the sun. This is the right hand of God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth. It is unmatched and immeasurable power. To sit at God's right hand means that Jesus is co-equal with the Father as God and his reign and rule as well as he governs all things. In relation to the ascension, this is where we start to capture more of the significance of the phrase right hand. Right? Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's being exalted as the mediator and governor of all things. So that's a recap of last week. We'll get into new material this week as we look at question 50. So let me have someone read the question and, to answer, and, and the answer to 50 in the catechism. Okay, thank you. Now we can consider this question by asking, what are the fruits of Christ sitting at the right hand? And the, um, 
Catechism, with the help of um, uh, your sinus and the Heidelberg Catechism, lays out these uh, five uh, benefits. Intercession for us, which we talked about, Christ intercedes for us. The gathering, governing, and preservation of the church by the word and the spirit. So Christ even uh, continues to function in the office as our king, as he governs the church, and he does it by his word and by his spirit. Um, the defense of the church against all her enemies is another benefit of Christ's ascension. The rejection and destruction of the enemies of the church and the glorification of the church and the removal of all the infirmities to which it is here subjected. The infirmities in the church. We gather together on Sunday, the Lord's Day, but sin is not completely removed. Right. We offend each other. We sin against each other. We ask for forgiveness, repentance. Right. All of these things are happening within the body of Christ. There are uh, infirmities that we still deal with. Even as we go to worship, our affections aren't where they ought to be, considering that we're worshiping our triune God. We get distracted, maybe sleepy. Right. We didn't have our coffee. These things that uh, inform or distract us from worshiping God as we ought to. But all of this, all of these things will be removed from the church when she is in glory with our triune God. Now, I love the way the catechism uses this phrase, heavenly graces, uh, that we have, we benefit by the spirit, these heavenly graces. So it doesn't picture our union with Christ and even our being seated with him uh, and those rewards that come to us as the sort of rights due to a Christian because they uh, kept the race, because they were strong, because they had uh, um, the audacity to, 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 to keep going. But it pictures them as grace. In other words, more mercy that we get from our God. What have we received that hasn't been granted to us by the merits of Christ? Uh, what have we earned that's not a gift of grace through Christ's mediation? Even uh, heaven, yes, is talked about as a reward. Those who endure to the end will receive this reward. But even that, um, I heard one person put in this way. He says, it's just more mercy. It's just more grace. It's the kindness of God shown to us. We receive from the spirit who brings to us the riches of Christ, heavenly graces. Christ continues to mediate for his church by his spirit. The spirit sanctifies our works and our prayers. Um, why does God accept our good works? We know that our good works are tainted by sin. Um, I, I heard, I, I don't remember who it was, but um, one, one pastor said, if everything, if, if sin is blue, then everything we do is some hue of blue. Right. We know that our good works are tainted by some some blue, our intentions, our affections, um, even our most sincere prayers are tainted. Maybe they aren't fully for the glory of God in some sense, or maybe there's vainglory in there somewhere. Why does God accept them? Is it because we pray hard enough or our prayers are sincere enough? Or is it because of the mediation of Christ? Even tainted works are accepted because of Christ's work on our behalf. Um, Brian Chappell says this um, concerning what Christ has earned for us. He says, Christ provides what is 
needed as advocacy and intercession before the Father. As we repent of our sins, as we pray to God, our sins are taken by the Son to God, acting as a priest on our behalf, as the one who now intercedes for us, so that God will listen and act on our behalf. Now, he's not uh, advocating a perpetual sacrifice, right? He's saying that what we sing in our hymns, even, that the blood of Christ avails for me, even now, past sins present sins, future sins have all been paid for by the blood of Christ. And he intercedes for us even now that the father would um, determine because of the merits of Christ to not see us as anything other than righteous. Not a little righteous, not degrees of righteous righteousness, but as righteous as the son is righteous. This is something that we can't comprehend. We don't have the categories for this type of of goodness and kindness that we are seeing as righteous as Christ is righteous. In the hymn we sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues, you remember the line, the blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. Christ remains our priest forever. And he intercedes for you. And not just sort of the plural you as the church, but by name. You're carried before the Father. By name, when you find yourself uh, discouraged or downcast or dealing with depression or, or whatever it is, Christ, by name, he wears you on his bosom. He carries your name before the Father. Um, it is a very intimate salvation. Yes, it's uh, sort of plural in that sense. The church is saved, but also individuals are saved and regenerated by the Spirit. Um, As our priestly king, Christ also defends us against our enemies. Now, what does that look like? How does Christ defend us against our enemies? I want to hear hear from you guys. I would say one of the the best ways is when we're praying about problems, the Holy Spirit intercedes for Hmm. us on our behalf. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that then the angels respond in spiritual warfare hmm. against the problem. Yeah, that's excellent. Yep. Kyle? Yeah, in that sense, uh, defending us against our enemies, uh, with Satan as the accuser. Yeah. Right? And so there's right. this idea where he is defending us uh, on account of his work. Yep. Right? And Satan's accusations, though true, will never stick. Yeah. Amen. Yep. The accuser of the brethren. Yep. Can I ask that? He, he, he does it in a fascinating way, though, in that he doesn't just Yeah. Yep. Right. Yep. Christ has purchased our sanctification for us as well. It's by by his blood. What else? Other ways that Christ protects the church against our enemies. Any anything else come any verses come to mind? Go ahead. Uh well, yeah, there's verses written here, but I think uh, <laughs> just there's like a overall confidence that like he's won. Like there's no doubt of where right. this is going, or yeah. What the victory is, like we we know the outcome, right? Uh, and there's there's confidence and comfort and security in that. Yeah, Amen. If there's any doubt before that Christ is King, He is now seated 
at the right hand of the Father with all authority, right? So absolutely, he has, he has won. Um, and so I think uh, Pastor Ron mentioned this last week that the Christian can run the race as if they've already won. So it would be like being on the st- starting blocks of a, of a track meet and you're running the, you know, 100 and you're down in the blocks and they're about to shoot the gun and someone comes and puts the first place medal around your neck and then they say run, right? You hopefully you don't say, ah, well, I'm good. <laughs> you know, I've been doing this training. I can go home and eat donuts and chill. That, that's not the right perspective. And when you think about that in relation to salvation, the one who does sin that grace may abound shows that they're not truly a believer but the one who is in christ knowing that they have one because of christ's mediation they run the race with diligence confidence joy because christ has purchased their uh, victory for them we can put it in that way uh, psalm 2 9 says that christ will break his enemies with a rod of iron and shall shatter them like earthenware the enemies of our resurrected and enthroned king and governor of all things cannot contend with his power. Our resurrected Christ should be, that reality should be the most fearful thing for the unregenerate person. That Christ is seated, he's enthroned, the work is done. Um, it says in scripture that those who do not believe, uh, they have already been judged by their lack of belief, by their not entrusting themselves to this gracious king, this king who is also a warrior and will come to defend his church. The father has given the son, again, all authority. He sits at the right hand. If there was any doubt before of his kingship or his majesty, there should be none now. The father has appointed the son to carry out the righteous judgment and rule of God, which is why the scripture can use that language if they rejected Christ and they are judged already psalm 110 2 says the lord sits the, the lord says to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet the until isn't this will possibly happen it's certain i will make your enemies a footstool for your feet they will sit they will uh, be under you you will have dominion over them the Lord will stretch out your scepter, your strong scepter in Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So the strong military arm of God was displayed when Christ took the keys of death in Hades. And when he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Um, let me have someone read Matthew twelve twenty nine. Matthew twelve twenty nine. Who wants to read that for us? Go for it. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first finds the strong man? Then indeed, he will plunder his house. Okay, thank you. Satan was plundered by Christ. He is the... uh, strong man that was um, conquered by one stronger than he. Um, Although it doesn't appear this way, Christ's death was the death blow to Satan's strength uh, over those trapped in the domain of darkness. Ephesians 4, 8 says, uh, he, when he ascended on high, he led captive 
the captives, or he led a host of captives, right? We were the captives. We were those trapped in sin and enslavement as uh, those in Egypt in the Old Testament. You see that language used of believers, that Christ has redeemed them from their slavery to sin. Our Lord Christ was eternally enthroned with power and authority that he possessed before his humiliation. But the full revelation of what has already been declared will come to pass in its final, final and faithful display against the enemies of Christ. So the, the troubles that the Christian feels now, um, I've said this before, it's been said throughout uh, church history by wiser men, everything that Christ assumed, he will redeem. So our minds, our bodies, our affections, our wills, um, all of these things Christ assumed, a real human body and nature in order to redeem real human bodies, right? So we won't have the struggles of, of um, our wayward affections. We won't have to be told, don't stray to the left, don't stray to the right, stay on the middle of the path. But all of these things, we will, we will experience the fullness of what Christ has purchased for us when we are with him. And that's something that's worthy of praise and thanksgiving, of course. Um, any uh, thoughts before we jump to question 51? Any other verses come to mind? Any other, can you think of any other rewards or benefits of Christ's ascension? Maybe something that I didn't mention or that we don't see in the confession. Yeah, absolutely. Scripture says there's not one who's lost mother, brother, sister, who hasn't gained them a hundredfold. Um, and yes, in a real sense, that is this, this family that we have in Christ. You know, for many of us, um, our brothers and sisters in Christ, um, I, I would say for all of us, but experientially for many of us, our brothers and sisters in Christ are closer than our actual blood brothers and sisters and mother and father or cousins. You know, we it's we're looked at strange because we have this high value on body life and no, I actually want to be at church. I'm not being forced to go on Sunday. I want to be there. I want to worship with the saints. We do life together and we grow in that as well. And it is we have been Christ has purchased for us. Yes. Brothers and sisters all bought by his precious blood. And we are brought into that family. Absolutely. What else? Any, any other things come to mind? benefits of Christ's ascension and what he's purchased for us? All right, well, let's, let's look at question 51. Let me have someone read the question and answer to 51 in the catechism. <laughs> Say it together at the same time. <laughs> away all 
will come as judge from heaven to throw all his and my enemies into everlasting pain. Mm. He will also translate me with all his chosen to himself into celestial joys and everlasting glory. Yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> We're going to look at a few verses here. But your sinus, um, who was the pen the Heidelberg Catechism, the cousin of an Orthodox Catechism, he said this, the decree or from the decree of God by which he ordained and predestined with himself from everlasting uh, to raise the dead, this purpose can never be altered as God is unchangeable. So our forefathers and Protestant Reformed uh, faith have grounded uh, sanctification of the Christian, the unchangeable reality that we will actually make it to heaven. They grounded it in the very nature of God as immutable. Because God does not change, we are promised to reach the fullness of our sanctification. Because God does not change, everything promised for us in Scripture we can say that we have possession of it and will take full possession of it and even be it be spoken of as past tense is so sure of a thing. But it's grounded in the nature of God um, and the attributes, the perfections of God. Our confidence that Christ will fully redeem us and come back again to bring us to himself is grounded again in the decree of God, who he is what God is and what God has spoken. The father promised to reward the son, to give the son the full reward for his sufferings. And I know sometimes, even me, when I think about this, I, th- th- there's a little glitch there, but what is the reward for Christ's sufferings? What has been promised to him? What's that? His people, the church. You, you have been promised as the reward for Christ. Yes, there are uh, churches, there are denominations that twist these things and they make the man the center of of all these things, right? Um, But the comfort of the Christian is that we have been sort of enveloped in this love and reward and promise from the father to the son, uh, the, the father who predestined and Uh, calls a people, the son who dies for those people to redeem them, the spirit who applies the work of Christ to that. We have been wrapped up in it, elected from before the ages began, and we are beneficiaries. You are the reward, but it's not about you. (laughs) It's about God, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there is no better way, there is no higher glory or higher benefit than for us to be merely the beneficiaries of our almighty and powerful God redeeming a people. You want to be swept up in that. (laughs) If it's based on you, you won't keep your salvation. You won't sanctify yourself. I mean, we have fitness goals. My watch tells me I'm supposed to work out 30 minutes a day. I look at it, I say, I failed again. I set these goals, I don't keep them, right? We set goals for how we want to eat and what we want to do and all these things that are good things, but we fall short. How much more holy things are we not able to do and to keep and to pursue apart from the powerful work of God? 
it is a blessing to be swept up in that. So we should, we should glory in that and have confidence in God's work on our behalf. We will share the spoils of victory. We will be brought into heaven because God does not change and cannot lie. Um, let's read a few different verses. Someone go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 4. Who wants that? All right, 2 Peter 3, 3 to 4, and then Luke 21, 28. Right, Korean? And then Romans 8, 23. Want that? Okay. So 2 Peter, Luke, and then Romans 8, 23. 2 Peter 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue just as they were from the beginning of creation. Okay, so there's this sort of mocking that that happens here. Um, the Christian who says, "Well, no, Christ is is coming. He's he's promised. He's he's returning." Right? It's almost a joke to have that type of view of the world. This sort of Messiah is coming back to save the world, which is why well, I'm not going to get on that, but. It's, it's sort of, you're seen as strange, but scripture says that we ought to have this confidence and those who mock now will not mock later. Um, and those who are mocked now will rejoice later in the glory of Christ. Um, and even in some sense, as he carries out perfect justice. Um, Luke 21, 28, who had that? Right. Straighten up and lift up your heads. Why? The, the, the lifting up of the chin to, to the heavens is based on the reality, the truth that your redemption is drawing near. He is coming back to save his people, to deal with her, her enemies. And then Romans 8.23. Yeah. So Romans, the wider context in Romans 8 talks about the groaning of creation and it looks at um, earthquakes and tsunamis and tornadoes and all these sort of natural disasters. And it says this isn't sort of just happenstance. This is creation groaning, sort of um, uh, screeching and fidgeting, awaiting the revelation of the sons of God. Uh, creation itself is, is longing, and we, along with creation, we groan for new bodies. We groan to be done away with, uh, to, to do away with sin. We, we groan to, to have aching bodies and these things put away, and minds that are distracted, and mental struggles and heart issues. All of these things that we feel now, this sort of old Adam that is so close at hand, um, will be done away with fully and finally then. Um, and Christ being raised is the first fruits, the proof that what God said will happen. Now, I want to sort of close by thinking about the gladness of Christ. Sometimes when we think about our redemption, we can sort of picture, well, either we picture so the Father as this uh, tyrannical, sort of mean 
Papa and he's just waiting to jump on us and then he sends the son and the son is sort of the nice version of God and then he redeems us but sort of over the son's shoulder is this father who's waiting to to crush us and we live with this sort of morbid view of God um, not realizing or forgetting that the love of the father was the cause for the sending of the son for God so loved the world that he sent the son not God didn't love the world and then he sent the son so that he would love the world no a Christ was sent because of God's the father's love for his elect so we can either have that view or we view or we have the view that sort of um, we're just a problem child in the kingdom right um, we're the one who's always just giving God a hard time I got all these issues all this stuff going on it's always something you know, sort of this, woe is me. I'm going to get into the kingdom, but, you know, I'm going to look like what's the, uh, the kid on, um, uh, is it Charlie Brown? The, the one with all the dust around him all the time, right? We view ourselves in that way. Like everybody else will have white robes. So I'm going to get it. I'm going to be dusty and, and stink and all this stuff. And so both of those are wrong ways to view uh, what is happening uh, in the heart and the life of the Christian by the spirit. Christ is glad the spirit is glad. The father is glad. Our God is a glad God. Hebrews 1.9. Uh, let me have someone read that for us. And I'll, um, Hebrews 1.9 and then someone else go to John 3.18. Who wants Hebrews 1.9? Crystal and then John 3.18. All right, Norm. And then Matthew 24 or rather 25.34. Matthew 25.34. Got that? All right. So uh, Hebrews... One nine. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. Okay. The oil of joy above your companions. Now, a lot of other things could be said here. We know that Christ is strong. He's ruler. He's governor. He has all authority. But here in Hebrews, it says the oil of joy or the oil of gladness he is anointed with. And then he brings us, will bring us, has, in some sense, brought us into that gladness, that joy. This is why scripture can say that um, the Christian can be joyful in all things, right? We can be pressed down and um, nearly destroyed and downcast and all these things and still have this joy. It's sort of this inexplicable joy. Um, and then John three eighteen. Okay, I don't remember why I put that there, but thank you for reading. Um, Matthew twenty-five thirty-four. Who is that? Then the king will say to those on his right, "Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world." Okay, I do know where I put that there, right? So we're being we're going to be brought into this kingdom. We're going to inherit this kingdom that is prepared for us, um, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is another interesting phrase. The, the kingdom that we're going to be brought into, it, didn't, it wasn't sort of this backup plan, right? Or 
we're going along and then God says, okay, uh, I think I'll sort of now start to build a kingdom for you. This is the same language of Ephesians. Before the foundation of the world, this has been prepared for you. Uh, before you were made aware or heard the gospel, the spirit began to work in your heart to give conviction of sin or any of that happened. When we were throwing stones at the heavens, a kingdom had been prepared for us to enter into. Um, and God brings that reality to us by regeneration and by uh, the spirit. And then Jude 24, 25, I'll close there. Now to him who was able, I'm going to read the NASB because I like the way it, it reads here. Now to him who was able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory. That same language we see of Christ's enthronement, glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. So the same Christ who rules and authority and power and governs, whose enemies will not be let off the hook, but he will defend his church and defend her enemies and his enemies. This same Christ, it says, will present you with great joy. In other words, he's happy to do it, right? He doesn't have you sort of by your collar and he's sort of saying, all right, this one, right? He was a lot, but he's, he's here. No, he's joyful. He's happy to do it with not just joy, but great joy. So this is the joy of our omnipotent, omniscient, triune God. It is joy beyond what we can comprehend. That joy is behind the presenting you before the Father. Not because we're good or we're special, but because God is good. And he is our strength and our hope and our joy. And all of those things that have been promised to us in the scriptures will be ours. So Christ's ascension has many benefits for us. Ones that we think about, ones that we don't, ones that we ought to think about more. But we should have a category for what is being brought to us by the Spirit because of Christ's ascension, as he is at the right hand of the Father with all authority and governing all things perfectly. All right, that's it. I would not have fit that into last week, so I broke it up into two classes. Um, but I do hope that that is um, encouraging for you. Maybe some of these scriptures um, you can go back and look through and consider. Um, this resource, uh, an Orthodox Catechism, is an extremely helpful, useful resource. We can look at it and it's like, this is old and antiquated. Why are we even studying an, uh, a catechism from so long ago? Um, but as we look at it and read it, and we remember that Christ, the, the wisdom of God has been displayed in the church, right? None of this is developed in a vacuum, but men and women have given thought to this. They've looked at scripture, they've studied um, with the same uh, sincerity that you have now as you study and as you pray, as they search through these things. And we have benefited from it. So we ought to come to this, uh, the subjects, even the catechism, with a sense of, of, of gladness um, and find in there our triune God and the hope that is found in him. Okay? All right, go ahead and I'll pray I, I for think, us. I think you missed the one verse. I think you meant verse 17, John 317. Read it. For what does it say? Another good verse, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Another excellent verse. Well, good. All right, well, let me pray for us, and then you'll be dismissed.
Our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we are grateful and thankful. Um, we pray that you will continue to stir in our affections a gladness, a joy um, in our triune God, that we would remember that all the things you have promised to us will come to us. You have never lied or deceived or not fulfilled a promise. And so we can have that assurance that even as Christ was raised and ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father in glory, we can have a sure confidence and hope that we will be glorified in him, by him. Um, and all of these things we have experienced in some sense now, but we'll experience fully then when we are brought home by our triune God. Lord, bless us now as we go into the corporate worship room to sing, to pray, to hear the word preach, to take the Lord's Supper. Help us to ring out of the Lord's Day all the benefits that you have for us through the means of grace and to do well with the time. Give us uh, attentive hearts, uh, clear minds, and genuine and sincere worship. And we ask that you would empower us to do this by your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, you all are dismissed. Thank you. Thank you.